Well, greetings from the dusty hills of Galilee. It is so beautiful here. It's fantastic to think that this was where Peter, James and John, the other disciples, walked around this very place, the Sea of Galilee off there in the distance. Actually, the truth is, this is not Israel. This is Horsetooth. But hey, this is a budget production. And as we're beginning this brand new series, The King of the Hill, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, we first of all knew that we needed to hire a huge crowd of professional actors and extras. Sadly, because of budget limitations, this is what we ended up with. You know, frankly, sometimes it's difficult to get good help. Think about some speeches that have changed the world. Four score and seven years ago, I have a dream from Martin Luther King. Maybe Winston Churchill, we shall fight them on the beaches. You see, words change the world. When Jesus gathered a crowd around him, sat down on the mountainside and delivered a sermon which, if it was delivered in one piece, as most commentators believe, took just around 12 minutes, he was offering to us words to change the world. And over the course of this next few months, we are going to take a really close look at the Sermon on the Mount, not just to gather more information or be able to recite the Beatitudes, but because truly, these are words that can change everything. Hello. <laughs> My name is Jeff Lucas. <laughs> I've recently experienced reversed aging and increased handsomeness, but I am Jeff Lucas. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Let me apologize to those of you who made your way into the building today, glanced at the back of your bulletin, and eagerly anticipated a wonderful, profound, British-inspired message from Pastor Jeff. Pastor Jeff flew in from the UK on Friday night, and his friends across the pond have given him a dose of swine flu. Yes, so please just be praying for Pastor Jeff. I talked to him yesterday afternoon, and he's going to be fine, but obviously battling that junk right now. So keep him in your prayers. Pray for Kay. I've never been around Jeff when he's sick, but you can imagine. So <laughs> keep, keep both of them in your prayers. and. He uh, hopefully, and the plan is he will be, uh, the good thing about that swine flu I hear is that it's rough for a couple days, but, but then it goes away. So he's planning on being here next weekend, and we'll continue this series. I uh, got the heads up Friday night that Jeff was not feeling well, and, uh, and so I, I need to be thinking about maybe speaking, uh, but Jeff thought he would get a good night's rest and be ready to go. So at 9 o'clock yesterday morning, I got word that he's not going to be ready to go. So I've been working diligently on my British accent, which uh, Jeff says sounds more like a drunk Swede, but <laughs> keep him in your prayers. I feel bad for him because he's been excited to kick off this new series. And uh, I've been excited just to, to be a part of learning and growing through this new series. And so I'm going to do that and he'll be back next week. Uh, next weekend, we've started a series, we're starting this weekend, called King of the Hill. And actually, there are close to a thousand people from Timberline who are plugged into a small group. Not one small group, that would be a large group, but 
um, a bunch of small groups all around northern Colorado who are uh, following a DVD curriculum that we created to go along with this series. And so I'm excited about that for most all of you. This will be the kickoff week for that small group. And by the way, it's not too late to sign up. If uh, you still want to sign up for a small group, you can do that online. If you're not sure how to do that, there's a table in the mall and they can help you. Uh, answer those questions for you. But uh, And then also we're going to do something we haven't done before. On Wednesday nights, we have an adult midweek service in here. And we also are going to take different aspects of, of this series that we won't spend time on on the weekend, and we're going to unpack them on Wednesday nights. So for about three months, we're going to have a pretty concerted effort to learn and dive into a pretty critical passage uh, in Scripture, one of the most critical passages in all of the New Testament. So we're kicking off that service this weekend, or that series this weekend, and we're going to focus on one verse this weekend. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Let me also apologize. I have been out for all the last week with this cough and sinus stuff, but it's not swine flu. I've been to the doctor. I'm not contagious. It's all good, but I may cough a little bit. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, here's what it says. Now, when he saw the crowds, he is Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And then the first part of verse two says, and he began to teach them. Now, I realize that it, it would not seem like there's much to talk about in that one verse. I mean, it seems like that verse is just preliminary stuff. It just kind of sets up the good stuff, what's about to come. But the truth is. There is something powerful there. And, and it really doesn't matter because you know we preachers, we can talk a lot about nothing. We, we've been doing that long before Seinfeld. So, um, But this, this verse is not nothing. All right? I know that's a double negative, which means it's positive. It means it's something. There's something powerful in the way Matthew sets up uh, this talk. This is the beginning of a talk a teaching that Jesus gives that has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's interesting it's called that because neither Matthew nor Jesus ever call it a sermon. In fact, it was probably 500 years after the words were spoken that a North African theologian named Augustine actually called it a sermon. But whatever the case, this sermon, it's contained in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And it's some of the most powerful words that Jesus ever spoke. In fact, John Stott, a theologian, says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Pretty interesting take on, on those chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And as we will see over the next 12 weeks or so, uh, this is quite a powerful and challenging portion of the Bible, and yet filled with potential if, in fact, we, we actually obeyed it. Some theologians, as Jeff alluded to in the, uh, in the video, some theologians believe this was a compilation of different excerpts of what Jesus taught throughout his ministry on earth. But most most theologians believe it was actually given in one setting. It's an actual event. Matthew seems to indicate that there's a beginning. He says Jesus sat down and began to speak. And there's an ending at the end of chapter 7. And most theologians believe that. But whatever the case may be, and in fact, as Jeff said, if it was given in one event, it, it probably only took about 12 minutes. How many of you wish we would preach more like 
Jesus. Yeah, last night someone shouted amen. And it was quite wounding, actually. But anyway, whatever the case, it is as radical and countercultural a message as could have been communicated in Jesus' day. And I would say it's as radical and countercultural a message as could be communicated in our day. And we'll see that as we unpack it over the next 12 weeks or so. Now, we don't know exactly where the teaching took place. It says on a mountainside. And in Colorado, when we think of mountain, we think of something different. We think of 14ers and they didn't put on their Gore-Tex and hike up a 14er and pitch a tent at Timberline. Okay, it wasn't that. But most likely, it was in some of the hills that are in the Galilee, uh, or the Galilee region, uh, probably northwest of Capernaum, just north of, of the, the Sea of Galilee. Probably in the same general area where Jesus would often go as we read the Gospels to be alone with the Father, to spend time in prayer. Probably the same kind of area. And so up on this, this kind of grassy wildflower hillside, Jesus gathers and it says there's two groups of people who are there to hear this sermon. Okay? One group is called disciples. It probably means more than just the 12 disciples. It probably is a larger group than that of, of people who are, are would-be followers. They're would-be apprentices. They're there to hear what this man has to say. They've been drawn to him. And then also, he identifies the crowd. At the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, it says when he was done, that the crowds were amazed. And so there's disciples and there's a crowd of people who have gathered together there. It's no wonder that there's a crowd. Because, see, if you understand what's happening at this time, for 400 years, at, at the close of the Old Testament, what's called the intertestamental period, for 400 years, heaven has been silent. God has not spoken. For 400 years, after 400 years of silence, heaven erupts, bursts, explodes onto the scene on this earth in the person of Jesus. Heaven, you might say, is breaking out all over this place called Galilee in the person of Jesus. And, and John the Baptist has created an anticipation in announcing that Jesus would come and saying that he is the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. Is what John the Baptist said. Jesus goes through temptation in the wilderness and then is baptized by John the Baptist and begins to go throughout all of Galilee proclaiming a message, a simple but direct message. The message was repent, change, turn, repent, and for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark puts it, repent and believe the good news. And Matthew gives us the picture that the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus is communicating, this simple message. Listen to these words at the end of chapter 4, right before the text that we just read. The end of chapter 4, it's not on the screen, but this will give you a picture. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now Galilee, where all of this was taking place, was a relatively small area, probably about 70 by 40 miles. 
is the geographical area of Galilee. And yet, Jewish historian Josephus says that there were about 3 million people who lived in this area at the time of Jesus. So heaven has exploded in the person of Jesus in this small but densely populated area, this place called Galilee. Some commentators say that in that one day that we just read about, in that one day there were more miracles that happened than in the whole Old Testament period. Heaven has erupted in this place called Galilee. Can you see why crowds wanted to be near this man Jesus? Not only was their anticipation and expectation because of the miracles, they weren't only hoping to witness or experience a miracle. They were filled with these high hopes of, of a political military deliverer who would rise to power and who would set things right, who would deliver them from the occupying forces of Rome who were oppressing them, and they had their eye on Jesus. In fact, John's gospel tells us that at one point they tried to forcibly take Jesus and make him their king. And so you can, you can begin to get a picture of the backdrop of what's happening here. There's this crowd of people attracted by miracles, loaded with preconceived ideas, filled with the hope of a deliverer and hopes that Jesus would affirm their particular approach to God, their particular style of religion. And then Jesus opens his mouth and he turns everything upside down. Absolutely revolutionary counterculture message that's going to come from his lips. Now, this first verse, I love Pastor Jeff uh, refers to this first verse as a linguistic drum roll. Can't you just hear Jeff saying that? A linguistic drum roll. Verse 1 is Matthew's way of saying, here it comes. Are you ready? And it's like the ta-da when he begins to communicate. It builds up to what Jesus is about to say. It begins by saying that they went up on the mountainside and it says, and Jesus sat down. Now that's significant and here's why. Have you ever been to a meeting at, say, like a restaurant and, and you have a... Hey, uh, it's like in one of those back rooms, you know, where you're, you're there to meet, but it's good, you're going to meet over lunch. And so everybody's sitting down, they're eating, they're talking, they're having conversation, talking about business or, or uh, sports or the family or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, the leader of the meeting stands up and does this. You ever been in a meeting where three of you? Great. You should get out more. You guys should go to meetings once in a while. We all know what that means, right? That means, okay, listen, I want your attention. Something official is about to be said. The meeting is about to start. Everybody listen up. And we know that because the person stands up. In our culture, they stand up. In Jesus' day, it was kind of the opposite. When a rabbi sat down... Sitting was actually the authoritative position for a rabbi. It was, in effect, the clanking of the glass. When a rabbi sat down, it was a signal that this isn't just small talk. The rabbi is going to say something official, something authoritative. The rabbi is going to speak. So everybody listen up. Give your attention. All right, so the first picture we see in this first verse, if you're taking notes, is Jesus, our rabbi. And we see the call... To lifelong learning. Jesus, our rabbi. The call to lifelong learning. Jesus assumes the position of authority as our rabbi. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, 
You've heard it said, but I say. Six times. Powerful declaration of authority. You've heard it said, but I say. In fact, that phrase, I say unto you, is used 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Six of those times, it's in this sermon. And, and each time it's used, it's, it's kind of like saying, thus saith the Lord. It's like a prophetic preface to whatever comes next. An announcement that this is, this is prophetic coming from the heart of God. Six times, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And then it says, he sat down and began to teach them. The New American Standard Bible includes the phrase, he sat down, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, why, why is it included there? It's not because the writer was concerned that we, the reader, might think that he was going to try to teach them without opening his mouth. It's not just information. That phrase, he opened his mouth, is another drum roll. It's, it's another clanking of the glass. It's another way of saying, the rabbi has sat down, he's about to speak. So pay attention to what he says. Because what he says, he's going to say with authority. That's what was being said at this point. Clanking the glass. And at the end of the sermon, here's what's interesting. If you go all the way to the end of chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you will see the response or the result of that sermon was that the crowds were amazed. And the interesting part is what amazed them. They weren't amazed at his eloquent oratory. It doesn't even say that they were amazed at the profundity of the message he communicated. What amazed them was that he taught as someone with authority, not like their teachers of the law. See, they were used to hearing their teachers of the law just quote other people. But Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. They had never heard that kind of authority being spoken from a rabbi. Let me suggest this to you. Something changes in us when we see Jesus as our rabbi. Now, it's interesting that we use the word rabbi because in our day, in our culture, unless you're real familiar with Jewish culture, rabbi doesn't have as much meaning to us. But it would not work to use the word teacher because in our culture, we often, good or bad, we often associate teaching with the dispensing of information. A relationship between a rabbi and a disciple was way more than just the dispensing of information. Something changes in us when we seek to not only learn the teaching of Jesus, but we seek to emulate his life, which was the goal of a disciple who followed a rabbi. It was to emulate his steps, to emulate his life. When we recognize and submit to his authority in our lives, when we realize that Jesus is not merely a counselor or an advisor, who offers us suggestions about life, he's king. He's king of the hill. Not just the hill in Galilee. Jesus is king of all kings. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said he was not a mere man. He was not a mere expounder of the law or just another scribe or Pharisee or prophet. He was infinitely more than that. He was God the Son in the flesh presenting the truth of God. See, this king 
was not offering suggestions for you and I to consider. He was calling us to a new way of life, a way of life that was revolutionary, that was countercultural, and had the potential to change the world. Everything changes when we see him as Jesus, our rabbi, and next in your outline, when we see him as Jesus, our king. Jesus, our king, the call to be kingdom people. The call to be kingdom people. The main message of Jesus while he was on this earth. If you were to reduce the teachings and the life and the miracles that Jesus did while on this earth and put it into a mission statement on a t-shirt, that mission would be to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that term, kingdom of heaven... Sometimes, is you, it, or whenever it's used interchangeably with kingdom of God, it means the same thing. To say kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is referring to the same thing. Matthew prefers to use kingdom of heaven because that was a more Jewish way of saying it. And the primary target audience of Matthew was Jews. But it means the same thing. And when we say kingdom of heaven, it's not talking about some distant cosmic planet called heaven where there are are harps and clouds. It's not talking about that. Heaven is another way of referring to the dwelling of God. The dwelling place of God. And it's not just talking about something that happens someday when we die. When Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven is near, he was announcing that the dwelling of God was near us in the person of Jesus. It had come near to us. Heaven had exploded on earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus taught and he modeled and he demonstrated through his life that realm where God dwells, where God is king. Jesus embodied, if you will, the kingdom of heaven. In this very Sermon on the Mount, in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to pray and he says, pray like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that place where God rules, where God is king, his will be done on earth as it is there in heaven. The, the, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is that those who follow Jesus ought to live their lives in that way here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. That the kingdom of heaven is near to us and those of us who follow Jesus as our rabbi, as our king, ought to live out the life of the kingdom here and now. It's not just describing what it will be like someday when we die. It's how we are to live here and now. The next chapter also, chapter 6 of Matthew, in the same sermon, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let that be a priority of your seeking, his kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is not just some kind of distant cosmic planet. It's not just a way of talking about what happens when we die. It is an announcement of the dwelling of God exploding on the earth, first in the person of Jesus, and then through those who submit to his authority and live under his rule and reign as king. His body, you and I. When we become kingdom people, the life of heaven begins to become the life of earth 
through us as we, in the words of N.T. Wright, transform this world into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended as we live out being kingdom people. Jesus, our rabbi, Jesus, our king. There's one more picture that I want us to see before we go this morning, and that is Jesus, our friend. Jesus, our friend, the call to heart relationship. Jesus, our friend, the call to heart relationship. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse that has been wrestled with by scholars and theologians and preachers for literally hundreds of years. It is an explosive sermon. It's been vigorously debated regarding things like what does it mean, who does it apply to, how are we supposed to apply it, and there are differing perspectives that exist, many different perspectives. We won't take time to talk about all of them. But there's a couple that I want to draw our attention to. It seems like there are those who view it as a new law. Some have even called it Christ's legislation. And they believe the Sermon on the Mount exists for us to to pursue it with a legalistic fervor that would make the Pharisees proud. And then there's those who kind of find themselves on the opposite side of that, who see it as a mirror. In other words, it, it exists for us to see it and realize how impossible it is to ever live it. And that would cause us to realize we, we need a savior. We need something bigger than us in order to even come close to living like this. And there's some truth to that. Although Paul said, Paul said that the law actually was given to us to be our mirror. It was our schoolmaster to point us to our need for a savior. There's a lot of other varying opinions, but here's the bottom line. I think it all comes down to a story Jesus tells at the end of the sermon that helps us grapple with what our response should be to the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the story, or at the end of the sermon, he tells a story, a parable. And it's a parable most of us, if you've been around church very long, and if you've been in kids' church growing up, you've heard it. It's a story about two houses. Two houses are built... One house is built on a rock and one house is built on sand. And, and a storm comes. And if you, were, if you grew up in kids' church like me, you probably learned a song that goes with it. Do you remember the song we said? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon... Is that how it goes? You know it. I'm watching you. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came a-tumbling down. And the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and... How many of you know this song? You were good Sunday school people. I'm proud of you. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house. How'd the sand go? Do you remember the sand? I couldn't remember the sand. It's like, yeah, that's it, sand. Foolish man built his house. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the house on the sand went splat. And we kind of got some enjoyment out of the splat. If you, if you didn't grow up in church, see what you missed? That whole song comes from a story Jesus tells at the end of his sermon to drive home our response to that sermon. And here's how he does it. The difference between the house on a rock and the house on sand, what made the difference was that people who built, the the, the man who built his house on the rock represented people who heard his words and put them into practice. And the people who built their house on the sand represented, or the the man who built his house on the sand represents people who hear his words and don't put them into practice. 
And when the rains came down, and it says the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the houses, one stood because there was a foundation, and one fell with a great crash, the NIV says. And the difference was those who hear his words and put them into practice, and those who hear his words and don't put them into practice. That's how Jesus painted the picture. And so we are confronted with the issue of obedience. I love what Jeff Lucas says. He says, we are confronted with the awkward truth that that which we believe, we live by. Everything else is religious froth. That which we believe, we live by. Everything else is religious froth. Or should I say, froth. (laughs) However Jeff would say it. There's a lot of truth to that. Our response to the Sermon on the Mount, should not be pharisaical legalism. God forbid, when you read Jesus and his confrontations with the Pharisees, the last thing he would want was for people to take his sermon and turn it into another set of rules and regulations that we pursue with legalistic fervor. So our response should not be pharisaical legalism, nor should it be a hopeless resignation. Our response to the Sermon on the Mount should be humble obedience that is enabled by and inspired by an intimate heart relationship with God through His Son Jesus and is empowered by His Holy Spirit. That should be our response. It should lead us to surrender. Surrender to Jesus our Rabbi, Jesus our King, Jesus our Friend. I love that in the Sermon on the Mount, multiple times, Jesus uses the phrase, Father in heaven. Father in heaven. We are not left alone to navigate our way through the life that is described in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is not a new set of rules and regulations. It is first and foremost about a new life lived under the fatherhood of God. A life available to a heart that has been utterly transformed by Jesus, our rabbi, king, and friend. So, we started the sermon with two groups of people. Disciples and a crowd. I would say that listening to me this morning, there are two groups of people. Disciples, those who have embraced Jesus as as king, Jesus as friend. What was the other one? Rabbi, thank you. I, I read a quote this week that said, my short-term memory, let's see, my short-term memory is not as sharp as it used to be. Also, my short-term memory is not as sharp as it used to be. <laughs> Feeling that. There, there are in this room disciples who've embraced Jesus, Rabbi, King, and Friend. And there are people in this room who are part of the crowd, seeking, curious, Maybe compelled by need, maybe financial need, maybe emotional need, physical need, whatever it might be. Maybe compelled by a longing inside for purpose and meaning. Maybe compelled by a longing to be connected to the God who made you. Whatever the case may be, there are people here who are disciples and who are the crowd. The prayer of my heart since yesterday when I got the phone call at 9 o'clock and I started breathing again was that at the invitation to you that there would be people who would respond to step out of the crowd and into Jesus into his love his life his forgiveness his authority 
his rule and his reign. The only one trustworthy enough to surrender control of our lives to. The God who knows you, knows everything about you, every failure you've ever had, every mistake, every hang-up, every piece of baggage, and loves you anyway, and wants to be your king. That's been my prayers. Now see, the title of this message, if you noticed, is Jesus is Lord. That was the title of the message. However, it's not Jesus is Lord, exclamation point. The title is Jesus is Lord, question mark. And the question mark is not because there's uncertainty about who Jesus is. The question mark is to pose the question to you and I. Have we ascribed lordship of our lives to Jesus? Because that's really what rabbi, king, and friend is all about. It's that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, I'm not. Some of you may be here today and you've counted yourself among the disciples But as the Holy Spirit in his loving but firm way has revealed in your own life, you realize I'm really part of the crowd. It's time for me to step out of the crowd and to become truly a follower of Jesus as my king and the Lord of my life. Would you bow your heads with me, please? And we're going to pray in just a moment. I would just like to ask before we pray, if you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I I really... Know that I am part of the crowd. And today is my day. God's Spirit is touching your heart, working on you. And you would say, by faith, I'm going to step from the crowd and step into Jesus. I'm going to turn. Repent, Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn, change. Repentance is such a glorious word because he can empower you to change. And I'm going to turn from living for myself or however I've been living and surrender to Jesus as my rabbi, my king, the one with authority, the one with rule over my life, and my friend who will enable me and empower me to, to be who he wants me to be. If that's you today and you want to step from the crowd, I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip up your hand and say, Rob, would you just include me in this prayer because that's where I'm at. Thank you. Thank you all over the room. Thank you for being honest. Thank you so much for being vulnerable. Can we all, all of us together, just stand and and let's have this closing prayer together and pray especially for those who raise their hand. Father, we come to you today overwhelmed by the revelation of your love for us. The fact that you would be not only king but father is just incredible. That you would be ruler and yet have a father's heart for us is so amazing to us. And we just respond to that great love. I pray for those today who maybe have always been a part of the crowd. Maybe have never been a disciple, a follower. And for some who maybe have put themselves in the disciple camp but but you've revealed the truth about their life that they also are just in the crowd. But today they're saying, I turn from being just in the crowd, a seeker. I turn from living for me, whatever else I've pursued as, as, as the center of my life, and I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus to be my rabbi, my king, my friend. I declare you, Jesus, as Lord of my life. And God, I just pray that you will begin something brand new in their hearts today.
a brand new journey of purpose and meaning, of relationship, of impact through their life. May we live as kingdom people right here and right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our prayer team is going to come at this time in both auditoriums. If you need prayer, they would love to take your hands and pray for you. Otherwise, I love you. Thanks for letting me speak into your life. God bless you as you go. Come back for Summit tonight if you haven't been. Have a wonderful day.